we doing? So I know, I know I feel a little bit tired. And then I look out at all of you, and you make me feel even more tired. Is that, are you going to be offended if I say that? It, it feels like a really sleepy Sunday morning to me. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something a little bit different right before I start. Um, you know, I, I'm not able to talk to all of you to, to see how your summer's been going. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, we're going to boil this down. I'm going to get my work done here real quick. I want you to think of your favorite thing about summer so far. So just think of what it is. For, for Roger, we know it's spending time with his wife. And then close second is fishing. Right, so <laughs> he'll, he'll choose one of those. Okay, it could be fishing. It could be camping. It could be camp. It could be volleyball or basketball. It could be going to family reunions, some of you like that. It could be road trip. It could be sleeping in. Whatever it is, I want you to take a moment and just think of your favorite thing about summer so far. Just think about it right now. Okay. And I'm going to count to three, and I want you all to tell it to me. This is, I, I, they teach this in seminary. I will be able to hear you all. This is, this is a, a pastor's superpower, okay? So believe me. I, I mean, we're going to do this, right? So I'm going to count to three, and then I want you to share with me out loud your favorite part of the summer so far. Can we handle that? All right. One, two, three. Wow, you guys are having a great summer. This is, this is fantastic. Man, okay, good. Well, thanks for that. I will uh, probably have to uh, follow up with each and every one of you to make sure I heard you properly. It's good. It, it's good to, I, I like the change of pace. I like the fact that there's so many uh, live streaming right now, out, out camping, and so many that will connect afterwards, and, 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 and people that are visiting here as well. I just I think it's great that we have a different cadence and rhythm to life, but it's also good to be alive and awake on a Sunday morning in which we have the privilege to dig deep into God's Word together. And when we do open the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to encounter a few analogies or metaphors or figures of speech and quotes that Peter uses talking about rocks and stones to make his point clear to us today. Now, just a a little while ago, my father-in-law compiled a few stories from his life and into a book, and he gave that to his kids when we gathered together as a family. Karen's been, Karen read a few of those stories as we were driving home from Alberta, and I was fascinated from some of his childhood memories, and I haven't heard all of them, maybe like Karen has at some point. And one of his childhood memories growing up on a farm in Manitou was picking rocks. It was the never-ending task of picking rocks, and I find that fascinating because my dad has very many of the same stories growing up on a farm in southern Ontario. Anyone else here picked rocks in a field before? Right, exactly. And it's, I'm always amazed one of the miracles of life is that these rocks can multiply overnight, over year to year. You pick them all and then more are there to take their place. I don't exactly know how that happens. And, you know, from, from a prairie perspective, when we think of rock and stone, that's probably a lot of what comes to mind. We don't have a lot of rocks and stones in other settings. So that's one of the reasons I love to drive out to the Canadian Shield, whether it's in the White Shell or in northwestern Ontario, and rock and stone becomes this beautiful part of the landscape. In fact, on our drive to a family cottage at the corner of Highway 17 and 71 in northwestern Ontario, uh, there is this big rock face where they, they, they blasted part of the rock away to make room for the highway and our family likes to refer to it as the colossal rock. It's one of the biggest rock faces we see on our trip to the cottage. And it's a marker that we're only one hour away from our destination. And that idea of a, a colossal rock makes sense to us prairie folk <laughs> until we bring our kids to the Rockies. And then, okay, so maybe colossal rock is a bit of an overstatement in northwestern Ontario. These are all the ideas in mind. And what you say when you mean a, a big rock or a rock and stone, it changes. 
based on where you live and maybe what time you live and what culture you're from. And so we need to, to recognize that Peter is going to use these analogies of rock and stone to continue to teach to, to, to the dispersed church and the persecuted church about who they are in Christ and in what role they need to play for the world around them. And you guessed it. A lot of these lessons apply to us today too. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read for you verses 4 through 10. You can open up your Bible here. You can keep it open during the course of our morning. It will be our home base. But then also have all the passages that we'll read together on the screen as well. You can follow along there. Peter writes these words. As you come to him, being Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray once more. Father God, you have declared us to be your people. You have shown us tremendous and undeserved mercy. In light of that, that's that's who Peter says we are. That's who you say we are. God, we have to live differently. We have a unique identity in you that we must not only understand, but we must live out. And so, Father, as we again come humbly before your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth that your spirit would guide us into this truth and that we may use it to honor and glorify you. We dedicate this time to you and pray it in your name. Amen. So Peter, again, uses these quotes and these metaphors and he says at the beginning that you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So if you were listening to Peter, and you know who Peter is, a lifelong devout Jew who's now a Messianic Jew, believing that Jesus, the anointed one, has come, When he says being built up into a spiritual house, what do you think he's referring to when he says spiritual house? What specific building does Peter have in mind? He's talking about the temple. And that becomes even more clear when he says you're being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices. This is temple imagery. That's exactly what Peter means. And so this is not any old spiritual house. It's not just a nice idea. It's something crucial to understand who we are in Christ or what Christ is doing to us as the church. We must understand the temple as Peter and his first audience would have understood it. Now the temple, the spiritual house of God, began as the tabernacle or tent of meeting back in the days of Moses when God first made his covenant with Israel. And then once they inherited the promised land, it was King Solomon who built the first permanent temple. And then that was destroyed when the Babylonians came and and, and brought the children of Israel into exile. And then it was rebuilt during the time of of Ezra and Nehemiah. Then eventually it was made even better by King Herod, who loved to build. 
And so we have this beautiful temple at the heart of Jerusalem. And it would have looked a little bit like this model we have here. And you'll see that there's a, an enormous courtyard all around the temple with those beautiful columns at the side. And then you enter the temple proper. And, and to really understand not only just the beauty of the temple, but its importance, we need to look closer. And so, yes, I'm going to nerd out and talk about some temple details. But don't worry, there's diagrams. You guys with me? I think we need to know about the temple in order to know about what Peter is teaching us. And so the temple was not just beautiful, it was important because it was God's throne. It was the place where his presence dwelt. And so everything about the temple physically and everything about who was allowed and what parts of the temple were a reminder of the holiness of God and his presence here on earth. So when we look at the next diagram here, what we see and what I want to point out is there is levels of holiness to the temple. So the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, you have all of these reminders. So the precious metals, they start out as bronze and then they turn to silver and then in the Holy of Holies, it will be gold. And then who is allowed at these different places will also change and be more restricted the closer you get to the presence of God. Everything about this building pointed to the holy presence of the Lord. And so on the outside, around there, that huge courtyard was the Gentiles' courtyard. And anyone, anyone could come and to worship God at that place, in that courtyard. And so remember when we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem. He was a eunuch, he was a Gentile. He would have been allowed in that courtyard to worship the one true God, but he could not enter the temple grounds proper. That was restricted to him. And so you had the beautiful gate, and then you'd enter a place called the woman's courtyard. Not, it wasn't just that women could go there. It was that that is as far as women could go. And if you have a problem with that, you don't have to blame me. I'm just the messenger, okay? So in that culture, that was as far as women could go. And so men and women and children would, would fill that courtyard. A lot of worship would happen there. And then they could look through the colonnade into the next courtyard, which was the priest's courtyard which had all the places where the sacrifices would happen. You'd have the slaughtering table and the altar, and then also the, the place where the priests would wash with all the blood. And what's not labeled here, but right in between the women's courtyard and the priest's courtyard, you can see those steps leading up to that gate of Nicanor, there was a, a, a stretch of pavement or concrete, and the men could, could step into that very small courtyard, the Israelite courtyard, and they could have a closer view of what was happening. So the women could, Gentiles could go this far, women could go this far, men could go this far, and then the priests were the only ones allowed in that courtyard and then into the holy place. As we get to the next slide, we'll see what happens in the holy place, which now is getting closer and closer to God's presence. In the holy place, you have the table of showbread and the, um, the altar of incense that always needs to be ministered to daily, uh, twice daily, and then also you have the... Uh, the um, the lampstand, which needs to continue to burn. And only select priests on any given day would be allowed to enter the holy place in order to ensure that all of these things before the presence of God were continuing to go according to his purposes. And then you had a thick veil, another obstacle between this holy place and the holy of holies. And so you had Gentiles, women, men, priests, a few priests, and now you have the Holy of Holies, which is now the throne room of God on earth. And only one man, the high priest, could enter the Holy of Holies on one day, the Day of Atonement, to sprinkle blood on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, to ask for atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. 
And so in that Holy of Holies, everything is inlaid in gold. And everything has the focus on God's holy presence. So what we need to take away is that the temple was the place of God's manifest presence on earth. It's where he dwelt in a significant, powerful, and real way. And so when Peter says, we are living stones being built into a spiritual house, he says that we somehow and in some way are being built into this place, this thing that houses the very presence of a holy God. That is what he's saying. And he's, he, he says we are living stones, which is a weird metaphor. I mean, how can stones be alive? How would that work? And with any metaphor, the, the goal is to not be caught up too much in the details. He is saying that this is not a physical temple any longer. It's a spiritual temple. It's not made up of spiritual stones, but of people. And we are alive, and we are dynamic, and we are living and breathing, and we are moving. And that is all important to what Peter is trying to get across. We are being built up into the spiritual temple. Remember, we have a living hope in Jesus. And now we are living stones that together make up the temple where the presence of God resides. So one of the things I think is important to take out of what Peter is teaching us is that we can often individualize this truth, and it's a good truth, that the Spirit and the presence of God resides within us. And when you come to saving faith in Jesus, the Spirit abides in you. And that Spirit is with you wherever you go. And that is true. But Peter isn't saying you are a living stone. Now, you can just go somewhere and do your own thing. He says, no, we are like living stones together, being put together to be the spiritual temple of God. There is something significant about us as a group where God resides in a very real and specific way. So we come here on a Sunday morning, and we may feel a little bit sleepy, and we come from all sorts of different weeks and and different emotional states. I mean, some of us are tired from dragging our kids here. Others are tired because your parents dragged you here. You really would like to be somewhere else. Uh, Others are are, are wishing you were camping. Uh, Some of you are excited to be here uh, because you want to see friends or sing songs. You just can't wait to hear what that next sermon will be. I know there's a few of you out there. We can come because it's part of our routine. And we do this every single Sunday. So why would we even think anything different? We get up at the same time. We eat the same breakfast. And we just come to church. That's what we do. But what we need to remember What Peter wants us to know, what what the Lord is saying through Peter, is that as we gather here together today, the holy presence of the one true God resides within us. God is here. He is among us. We together are his temple. But we are living stones. And so we are not restricted just to experiencing the presence of God here. Yes, we can go out. And remember, Peter is talking to the the, the church that's in exile. They're dispersed. They're not together. They have to meet in secret. He says, even so, you are living stones being built into the spiritual house of God. And we can go and bring the presence of God to the rest of the world. And this idea of being a living stone is an ongoing process. Peter didn't say, you are a living stone. God has made you one. He says, you are being built up, continually being built up. You are living and dynamic. God is constantly at work in our midst so that our community can be holy just as God is holy. That's exactly what we learned last week. God is saying, if you are my temple and my temple is holy, then you also must be holy. All the fear and the reverence that that building was trying to instill in God's people, that still needs to be fear and reverence in our lives and displayed in us. 
And God is working and working and working to make that so in your life and in our life together. Now, if we are to be living stones, Jesus uniquely is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. And a cornerstone was a very important architectural piece back in those days. You'll see the picture behind me there of a cornerstone. And, and it was really vital for two reasons. Number one is the cornerstone would lay a firm foundation for the rest of the building. For all of us who, who own homes, we know how important it is to have a firm foundation so that our house doesn't shift and crack and crumble or become condemned. In the same way, uh, as a building would need a firm foundation, so does the church. So do the new covenant people of God. And we know that, that in life we can place our hope in anything, but the only firm foundation is going to be Jesus Christ. A year ago, we, we were going through this um, sermon series called Why Church, and we, we talked about how the church is founded by Jesus Christ. He instituted it. He created it. It's founded for Jesus Christ. It's to his honor and to his glory that we are the church and it's founded on Jesus Christ. He is our firm foundation. He is our cornerstone. And yet there is this second vital role that a cornerstone plays. Not only does it give a firm foundation, all the other stones along the bottom would give that foundation, but the cornerstone was laid first so that it would be perfectly square. And every other stone that would be laid on that building would be laid in reference to the cornerstone. It kept the integrity of the entire structure. How do you keep something square? You lay that square cornerstone and everything else is laid in reference to that stone. So Jesus is not only the foundation of the church, but he is our reference point. So what does it mean to be holy? We look to Christ. What does it look like to, to live as a living stone? We look to Jesus. We don't have to take it from me. You don't have to look around you, though hopefully you will see some godly examples. We live our lives in reference to Jesus. He is the cornerstone, our foundation and our reference point. Peter goes on to use three Old Testament quotes about stones to teach about this unique role of Jesus. He says here, quoting um, from Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Jesus is the cornerstone, yes, but he is, he is part of God's plan. He's, he's chosen. He is Precious. This is one of just many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. And then Peter turns it around and says, For those who do not believe, quoting from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Not only was Jesus chosen by the Father to be the cornerstone, but he was rejected by those who he came to save. The builders were his own people. I mean, God had chosen the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, to be his own people. And then he had sent his son to be the fulfillment of all those promises, and many of his own people were the ones that rejected him. This is something that Jesus himself was aware of, even in his own life and ministry. In Matthew 21, near the end of his time on earth, Jesus was sharing a parable uh, called the parable of the tenants. And in this parable, there is a master of a vineyard who owns this vineyard, and he gets everything ready, and then he gives the vineyard over to lease it to some tenants, and he goes to a faraway country. And when harvest time comes, the master sends a servant over to, to gather the harvest for the vineyard, and then the tenants kill the servant. And so he sends another servant over, and then they kill him. And so he finally says, I will send my own son. Surely they will listen to him. And then the tenants see the son and say, we can kill him and get his entire inheritance. And then Jesus is sharing this. 
in the hearing of many people who would reject him. And he says to those in verse 42, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, how does Peter know Jesus is the cornerstone? Because Jesus himself has declared it. And he's saying these promises that were initially given to Israel have now been inherited by those who would believe in Christ, a new covenant. The mantle is now being taken on by the church for those who will produce fruit. Something that Peter goes on at greater lengths to explain in his letter. And then there is this third quote about rocks and stones. Where Peter says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Jesus is the cornerstone for those to believe, who believe. Yet he is a stumbling stone for those who do not believe. Or as Peter describes it, those who disobey the word. What this means for us is that everybody needs to make a decision about Jesus. Everyone needs to make a decision. There's no middle ground here. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you desire to come to him to be a living stone founded on the cornerstone and being built up into a spiritual temple? Or do you find Jesus to be a stumbling stone, offensive, closed-minded, old-fashioned? Well, the choice is yours but it is a critical choice to make. Now, there are a few other analogies that Peter makes here. He says, you are like living stones being built up to a spiritual house, which focuses on how we together have the presence of God with us. He says, we are also to be a holy priesthood. And if the focus on the temple was of presence, the focus of a priesthood is on worship, because priests were chosen to carry on acts of worship and to mediate between God and his chosen people. You see all the boundaries of the temple. There was gates and veils and doors. And all of these boundaries were this indication that there was a holy God trying to be in relationship with an unholy people. And there needed to be some sort of bridge to bridge that gap between a holy God and an unholy people. And the sacrificial system was the temporary solution to this problem. And the priests would administer all the sacrifices. And so the people would bring their offerings to the temple, and then the priests would take them, and in the courtyard, as everyone else would observe from a distance, they would make these sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, to bridge that gap. They were the intermediary or the go-between. They would also look after other elements of worship, like the lampstand and the altar of incense in the holy place. It was at that altar of incense that Zechariah was ministering to when the angel appeared to him and said that his wife would bear a son and that his name would be John. The congregants would gather together in the courtyards, the Gentiles' courtyard and the women's courtyard and the Israelite courtyard, and they would gather for things like prayer, for singing hymns, for giving offerings and tithes, and to hear priestly benedictions. I mean, it doesn't seem that much different from today, does it? Well, I mean, right up until we get to the slaughtering of animals part, and there would have been a lot more blood during worship then than there is now. But some of the rhythm of worship was very similar In addition to that, there were seven major festivals or feasts that the priests would need to look after and lead the nation in. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we call the Passover, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which we've talked about, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. So there was a lot in in the Jewish 
calendar to, to celebrate. And God had ordained all of those. And there was three feasts in particular that were pilgrimage feasts. So Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles would mean that everyone who was able from the Jewish world would now converge upon Jerusalem and upon the temple, and the priests would be needed to lead them into worship. And yes, we know about some of these pilgrimage feasts because it was this pilgrimage at the Passover, which is why there was such a large crowd gathered at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And it was because of the pilgrimage of Pentecost, why there was such a large crowd to hear Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, preach the good news of Jesus in the book of Acts. You see, worship was meant to cultivate the relationship between God and his people by making atonement through the sacrifices and then to give daily reminders of dependence on God or constant reminders like festivals and daily worship, all done through the intermediation of the priests. So when Peter says that we are a holy priesthood, he says that we now lead people in worship of God. Not through sacrifices, but through prayers and singing and offerings and learning from the word. But we are also intermediaries between God and others. You see, in this explanation, Peter quotes from Exodus 19.6, where it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Why is that important? Because God never said to Israel, You are my nation and these are the priests. He says, You are to be a kingdom of priests a holy nation. So when you see the priests be an intermediary between me and you, know that this is your role to the world around you. You are to be an entire people who go between me and the rest of the world. You are my go-between. You are my ambassadors. You lead other people in worship of me. That was always God's desire for his entire nation of people. And now the church carries this mantle we can clear the way for others to know God. But if we are to be a holy priesthood, we need to have a high priest. And that high priest is Jesus. He plays a unique role once again. I love the way the author of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews is a book written uh, to those who are Jewish believers in Jesus who are considering moving back to the old covenant, to the old ways. And so, so much of Hebrews is talking about how the new covenant in Jesus is better. And it has a lot to do with what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2. I want to read for you Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 7. Now the point we are, in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Jesus is the great high priest. He mediates a new covenant between God and his people. And the new covenant is better. The promises are better. This covenant is eternal. It's everlasting. And we have the opportunity to lead people in worship of God and draw them to him. We are a holy priesthood. 
And yet there was one more point to make yet in this list in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, You are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, the temple of God and the presence of God, to be a holy priesthood, leading people in worship of God and being that go-between, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so there is one more lesson we need to know about the Old Covenant, and that it revolved around the sacrificial system. And everything about the sacrificial system was about atonement for sin and for guilt. All these sacrifices were carried out in that priestly courtyard of the temple with other people watching from afar. And there were five different major offerings. If you want to go through Leviticus, you can read them for yourself. (laughs) I just laughed because none of you are going to do that. That's fine. There's a burnt offering. And the burnt offering was, 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 was something where they would kill an animal and they would burn it in its entirety and it would be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. There was a grain offering, which is what it sounds like, a peace offering, which really was a meal that was then offered between two parties to reconcile and bring them together. And a third portion of that meal was dedicated to the Lord. There was the sin offering for unintentional sins, a guilt offering that if you wronged somebody else, you would need to make atonement to them. And if it was monetary, you would need to pay an extra one-fifth of the money owed. And all of these different offerings were meant to cover over atonement of any type of sin that would happen in the life of Israel. And all of this culminated on that day of atonement. Yes, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of God to make atonement for his people. Everything required sacrifice, blood, atonement. The sin must be covered. And where Jesus is the cornerstone, of the spiritual temple, where he is the great high priest of this holy priesthood. He also is the perfect sacrifice. Another point that's made in Hebrews 9, 11 to 4. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? So when we look at all of these animal sacrifices and how much blood was shed, we see that it was temporary and for a time. And the world and the people, we all needed Jesus to shed his own blood to be the one pure, perfect sacrifice. And through his blood, we all have our sins atoned for once for all. I love that. If you want to know why it's important, remember one thing only, that Jesus shed his blood once for all. So what sin are you struggling with? What shame and guilt are weighing you down? What are you having a hard time forgiving yourself for? The truth for you this morning is that Jesus' blood was enough. Once for all. Not only is he the perfect sacrifice that was needed in all of this, but we too are called to be living living sacrifices. So yes, we are the living stones that make up the temple. We are the priests that work in the temple. And we are also called to be the very sacrifices that are made. We see this in a very well-known passage in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we don't offer other sacrifices. We are the sacrifice. We lay our own lives down for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the kingdom. I never said this would be easy. (laughs) Think about this. The gospel of Jesus Christ requires nothing and asks for everything. It requires nothing. The work is done. And it asks for everything so that you would lay down your life. Again, I, I shared last week that uh, my wife and I had a wonderful time with her family. Uh, and and we, we saw her, her brother Curtis and sister-in-law Carlana and then niece Evie and, and, and nephew Charlie for the first time in four years because they followed the call of God to live in Australia. Now, they're not suffering down there. They live in a really nice place on the beach or close to the beach. But it's hard. It was hard to say goodbye. It was hard for them. But they are going where God called them to go. And so when I think of what it means to be a living sacrifice, I think of that. They laid down a lot to be obedient to the call of God in their life. I had an opportunity to go for coffee with uh, Andreas. And Andreas and Bianca are a young couple from Brazil that have joined us recently here. Uh, They're from Brazil, and and Andreas is now a student at Steinbeck Bible College. And they moved from their friends and family and their comfort zone of Brazil to be here because he wants to be obedient to God's call in his life. He says, God has asked me to preach or to teach the word of God. And so they left everything. And they took four suitcases, and then they came here. And two of those suitcases got lost by the airline forever. And so they come here with two suitcases and hopes and dreams and obedience to the call of God in their life. I think, I think that's a wonderful example of what a living sacrifice looks like. Well, what does it look like for you? What is God asking you to lay down, to sacrifice for his glory? In all these things, we know that Peter is saying that the church has now inherited the promises of God initially made through Israel. Peter says and summarizes it well in verse 9, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So why are we all these things? Well, he gives us our focus. He gives us our task that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we do this. That's why we're being made into a spiritual temple to have the presence of God among us. That's why we are leading others in worship of God. That is why we are sacrificing our lives and laying it down so that we may proclaim the excellencies of God who has done everything for us. Let us ensure that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, It seems so foreign to us to think about temples and courtyards and priests and animal sacrifices and our our worship looks so different. And yet it is in this covenant that you made with your people Israel that so much of our identity is still steeped, that we, we are still this living stones in your spiritual temple, that we are still a holy priesthood, that we are still offering sacrifices of praise to you by laying down our life. God, I pray that that we would understand the past in order to understand our identity in you, to understand the the mission that you've put us on, which is to proclaim to the world around us how excellent and wonderful and beautiful and loving and forgiving and merciful you are. 
So God, I pray that, that first today this would be a reminder and a reality in our life, that we would truly understand and believe these things to be true about you, and that we would do everything we can to declare it to those who would listen. We pray this in your name. Amen.